If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to that passage that Sam read for us, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Some of you are probably breathing a sigh of release that we're finally out of uh, Acts 3. Uh, but it's actually a continuation of the same story as we continue uh, to not be able to unlock my iPad. All right. Um, let's see. Let's try to get ahead. It's actually a continuation of the same story that we saw in Acts chapter 3. Remember, in Acts 3, we had a sign and a sermon. The, uh, the scene opens with Peter and John going into the temple to pray. And as they are going in, they meet a man who, uh, day after day, year after year, sat outside the temple at the gate called Beautiful, asking alms from those who were going in. And when Peter and John meet this man, they, they say to him, we don't have any gold or silver to give to you, but what we do have, we give. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And through the power of, of Jesus' name, through faith in Jesus' name, this man born lame stands and begins walking and leaping and Praising God. And understandably, that miracle attracted a crowd as, as people saw this man whom they knew to be lame, who they had known to be lame for, for years. As they saw him in the temple courts praising God as he ran around, they, they gathered to find out more about what had happened. And it is in, into that context that Peter proclaims the gospel, telling them first what it is that, that God had done in and through Jesus Christ. That, that the Jesus who had been killed in Jerusalem only months before had been raised from the dead and now through faith in his name, healing and salvation was offered to all who would repent. And therefore... He says, you must repent. You must turn from your sins to God and receive this salvation. Receive this new life. And it is as they are proclaiming that gospel of salvation, we're told here uh, in uh, Acts chapter 4, that as they were speaking to the people, as they were proclaiming this gospel, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed and arrested them. That's the context. This is, this is really the first time in the book of Acts that we, we see the authorities, the same authorities who had opposed Jesus. We now see those authorities begin to marshal their opposition against the church. And this morning I want us to think seriously about that opposition and I, and I want us to think seriously about how the apostles respond to that opposition. Let's begin with the opposition itself. Let's, let's begin with those who, who are standing against the apostles. These authorities that were greatly annoyed. These authorities that arrest Peter and John. We're told that it's the priests and the captain of the, the temple. Now the captain of the temple was a, a Levite. He was actually second uh, below the high priest. He's, and he has a, 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 a guard under him, trained Levites who act sort of like uh, police officers to, to impose the rules and the regulations of uh, the temple. It is, he was actually there when Jesus was arrested. He was the one leading the, the crowd that, that came to bring him in. And so the, the priests and the, the captain of the guard and the Sadducees, those are the official rules. We, we hear more about the Pharisees in the Gospels. We're, we're probably more familiar with, with them uh, because they were constantly interacting with, acting with Jesus. But the Pharisees were actually, actually a, a lay movement. They were not ordained. They were not official leaders. 
It is the Sadducees who have the official authority in the Jewish system. These are the, the, these are the men in charge. And, and we get more details about who actually this is in verses 5 and 6. After they arrest them and, and keep them in prison overnight, we're told in verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes, so the rulers, the elders, the scribes, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, so he's top, and Caiaphas. Why does he mention Caiaphas. Well, well, Caiaphas was also regarded as the high priest. Now, there weren't two high priests. You can't have two high priests at the same time. But because they were under Roman rule, there was the high priest who Rome officially recognized, and then there was the real man with power. And that's kind of the way this thing works. And we, we, we're familiar with that, uh, that worldly way. Of, uh, there's, the, there's the official man in charge, and then there's the person who really has the power. And that's what's going on here. So you have Annas, and you have, you have Caiaphas. And then we don't actually know who John and Alexander were, but they were important enough to name. Uh, as Luke mentions their names, he assumes that people know who they are. And so we've got the big names gathered together with the uh, officials who have the authority. And the, and the important thing to remember is what Sam said to the kids. These are the same people who arrested Jesus. These are the same people who not only arrested Jesus, but had Jesus put to death. What Peter said in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, he said that by the hands of lawless men, yes, it was the Romans, it was not Jews officially who crucified Jesus, but you did it by the hands of lawless men. You orchestrated it. You pulled this off. This was your idea. You're the ones who crucified the Lord of glory. And it's that same group that the apostles now stand before. They've already proven that they're willing to use their power to arrest. They, they arrested them and they, they threw them in jail overnight. Now we're told that it was too late for them to, to have a, a trial. And technically that was probably true. They'd already demonstrated their willingness to have trials at night. And so there might even be more going on here. It's not just a, a technicality of, well, we don't want to stay up late tonight. It's, it's, it's we're going to show you our power. We're going to keep you in jail overnight. We're going to remind you that we're the ones in charge. And these are the ones who the next day they are gathered before, that they, they stand before. Those who have already arrested them, those who have already kept them in prison overnight, and those whom they know just months earlier had crucified their master. We have to ask ourselves, what would that have felt like? What would it have felt like to stand there before that council? We're so familiar with these stories, I think we, we breeze through them too quickly sometimes. We, we forget the fear and the anxiety that would have been associated with standing before the court. After Sarah and I moved on into our new house on, on Dogwood Lane, uh, somehow the, uh, the, the title records for all of our cars got switched except for mine. And so the, the reminder to renew your title for my car never came. And so one time I was driving Hannah home from school or a police officer pulls me over. It's always fun to get pulled over with your kids. And uh, so I, I pull over and I'm wondering what's going on. And she says, you know, you know, your car, your tags are expired. Well, I sort of thought this was their fault. It was a clerical error, right? I mean, all my other cars, they had mailed me the reminder and I had done it. So I decided that instead of just paying the fine, I was going to go to court. It's just a fine. It's just a traffic violation. It's not even that big of a fine. 
But sitting in the courtroom, you get nervous. Sitting in the courtroom, you get anxious. There's a, there's a foreboding that goes with that. There's, there's a, a sense that they make it very clear to you that they have all the power. That, that they get to decide. That, that you simply have to do whatever it is they're going to tell you to do, whether that's a, a fine or, or whatever. And that's just dealing with a traffic violation. You get anxious and, and, and nervous just dealing with a court that has all the power when it's a moving violation. How much more when there is prison time and even execution on the line? You just imagine how anxious, you can imagine how fearful the apostles would have been in their own flesh. And how much higher that anxiety must have been when they realized that these are the very ones who killed Jesus. And the reason that's important for us to, to, to pause, to understand the, the fear, the foreboding that they are going to face is because we are going to face a similar sort of anxiety when we are opposed by the world. In God's grace, we live in the United States. In God's grace, we have not faced arrest and, and execution for our beliefs. So I think we all recognize that there is a, a tide of, of opposition that is growing. And that it's probably going to continue to, to grow. Even this week, I, I heard about a, uh, a new rule for realtors. Maybe you heard about it. It's a rule that controls what they can and cannot say, even when they're not on duty. And as I was listening to this report about what, what this, this new rule for realtors, the, uh, the World Magazine uh, journalist interviewed a, a bivocational pastor who, who pastors a church but also makes his living as a realtor. And he was very upfront about if this rule is put into effect, what it's going to do to his ability to make a living. He will not be able to preach the truths of the gospel. He will not be able to, to simply state things that are clearly stated in Scripture without getting in trouble, without losing his license. Now in our minds, that's an extreme example, but we recognize that while there may not be official rules and, and laws governing what we say and don't say, there are certainly social taboos already in existence. There are certain things that if you say them publicly, you will be ostracized. There, there are certain truths that if you voice them, you will suffer consequences. Whether that's at work or whether that's with, uh, with your friends, you will lose opportunities. You will lose relationships. This is the reality. We face opposition. Now, we should do what we can to protect the, the freedoms that we enjoy here in the United States. We should pray for our rulers as we are instructed. We should pray that they should rule in a way that we can live quiet and peaceful lives. And it is entirely appropriate for us as believers to, to take political action, to use our vote, to try to elect officials who respect religious freedom. But we must understand that our hope is not in political action. Our hope is not even in God protecting the, the, the policies that, that currently rule and have rules in this country. God in his mysterious wisdom has allowed his church to exist in places where it faced severe opposition for most of human history. 
And we need to be prepared for the reality that that opposition may continue to grow here, that we may face it more and more. Again, not that we hope for that, not that we don't even resist the change, but that we need to be prepared for it. And one of the ways that we prepare for the opposition that we will face is by noticing how the apostles themselves respond. So I want us to know first what the apostles do. What is their response? And then I want us to see how it is that they are able to respond in this way. So first, what is the apostles' response? How do the apostles respond to the situation where they are, they are facing a real threat, not just to their freedom, but to their very lives? We're told in verse 8 uh, what, how they respond. We're told, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. A clear, unambiguous, bold proclamation of the true gospel. Notice first, he, he refers to Jesus as, as Jesus of Nazareth. He is, he's making a claim in that. He is, he is reminding them that this is a historical fact. The gospel that they proclaim is not a, a subjective opinion. It's, it's, it's not a philosophy of life that, that, that may or may not work for you. He is, he is proclaiming a historical reality. In modern academics, there is a, a, a tendency to want to divide the Christ of faith from the Jesus of history. And they, they think it's totally all right if you want to believe in the Christ of faith, but the Jesus of history is something else entirely. And so they go on these quests for the historical Jesus. To this point, there's been three or four of them, depending on how you count. The early church would have recognized none of that. Peter, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, would have, would have recognized no division between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. The, fight, the, the Christ who was the object of his faith was the historical Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus who had walked among them, the, the Jesus who had been on full display through his public ministry for, for three years. It was this Jesus whom they crucified. And whom God raised from the dead. And, and think about the implications of that. So he's, he's saying, yes, this is a historical reality. And the historical reality is that you killed him and God raised him from the dead. He is declaring, again, in unambiguous terms that they made themselves to be the enemies of God by opposing Jesus. Jesus claims to be the Lord of all, the King of kings. Such a claim cannot be ignored. It, it either has to be denied or affirmed. He claims to be the King of kings, the, the maker of heaven and earth, the rightful Lord of, of space and time. All, every knee must bow and acknowledge Him. Every tongue must confess that He is the Lord. And they killed Him. And if they killed God's servant, if they killed the Messiah, they made themselves to be the enemies of God. 
justly condemned, rightfully subject to his full and holy wrath. That's the gospel message that Peter is proclaiming. It's a, it's a message that, that proclaims that we are enemies of God apart from Christ. If we do not acknowledge Christ as our Lord, we make ourselves to be his enemies. And that's true not only of these men in the positions of authority who, who were there and actually orchestrated Christ's crucifixion, but Paul tells us that this is true of all mankind. All men are, are rebels against God. All men are, are rebels against the, the rightful king. And so therefore, all men, he says in Ephesians chapter 2, are justly under the wrath of God. And again, we need to acknowledge this when we're thinking about what it means to, to proclaim the gospel. I've sometimes heard people suggest that, well, if you can tell people about your favorite restaurant, you should be able to tell people about the gospel because it's just good news. Have you ever heard that? That's silly. That is silly. Last night I was at, at dinner with, with Sam and, and Jenny for, for Jenny's birthday, and, and they had mint chocolate cake. That sound good or disgusting? Do you like mint and chocolate together or not? I happen to like it. Sarah does not. And so I can tell people, yeah, you should try this. It was really good. And there's really no threat involved. Because I like it. You may not. It's just an opinion. It's just a, a taste. When you proclaim the gospel, you are not recommending a restaurant. You are not recommending a movie. You are not recommending a book that someone may or may not like. You're not saying, hey, I really like it. You should give it a try. You are declaring to them as a historical fact that they are enemies of the maker of heaven and earth and justly under his wrath. That is offensive. That is offensive. And we have to, we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that this... This, this gospel that we proclaim is not about taste, it's not about opinion, it's not about subjective feelings. We are declaring to be historically true. The reality that God made all things, including us, we were made by Him and we were made for Him, and yet we rebelled against Him, and in rebelling against Him, we came under His curse, we came under His wrath. And we are now without hope in this world. That is the gospel. Not the full gospel. There's more, thankfully. That's part of it. And we can't escape it. And so it's understandable that, that we are, are nervous about proclaiming such a gospel to, to our neighbors. It's understandable that we, we recognize that they may not like this. We need to face those realities truly. But as I said, there's, there's more to the gospel than just the wrath of God because that's what he says next. He says, through faith in this Jesus, this man was healed. This man who was born lame is now walking and leaping and, and praising God through faith in his name. Now that does not mean, as we know from the totality of Scripture, that does not mean that everyone who believes in Jesus will receive physical healing here and now in this life. But that physical healing is a sign. That's what Luke calls it, the, the beginning of, of chapter 3. It is a sign. It is a sign that points to something 
bigger. Because we may think, well, you know, if you can't do the physical healing, we're, we're, we're missing out. But it's actually exactly the other way around. The physical healing is a small thing compared to what is actually being offered. The, 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 the power to heal this man's body is a picture of the power that he has to heal more than just our physical lives, but to restore us to right relationship with our Heavenly Father, to, to cover our guilt, to, re, to remove it as far as east is for us to, to cast it into a bottomless sea, even as we sang this morning. So the healing is a sign that, yes, through faith in His name, salvation is now available to all who believe. And yes, God has the power to heal in this life. And yes, God does sometimes still heal in this life. But the gospel that they were proclaiming was a gospel greater than physical healing here and now. It is a gospel of eternal life through Jesus Christ. It is a gospel of, of ultimate salvation. That is the gospel that is being proclaimed. And so as, they, as soon as he declares that, that they are under God's wrath, he offers them the solution. And again, this is why we can be bold to proclaim the gospel. We can offer, we can, we can let people know that they are under the wrath of God. Because we have a hope for them. A hope of salvation, a hope of reconciliation, a hope of forgiveness. But we also must be clear that it is the only hope. This is what... Peter gets out as he goes on to say, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This Jesus is the corner of the foundation, the only place to stand in the judgment. The wicked will not stand in the presence of God. But those who stand upon the rock, they will not be moved. The house built upon the sand of, of human efforts and human works, that house will fall with a great crash. But the house built upon the rock will not be overwhelmed. And Jesus is that foundation. He is the cornerstone. It's why Peter goes on to say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must be willing to proclaim that yes, there is salvation, there is hope for sinners who are enemies of God, who are hostile towards Him in mind, who are justly under His wrath. There's hope. There's hope of forgiveness. There's hope of reconciliation. There's, there's hope of salvation. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. But it's found nowhere else. And so if you would be saved, if you would be reconciled to your Maker, if you would be forgiven for your sins, you must confess Him as your Lord. You must receive Him as your Savior. That's the gospel that Peter proclaims, even standing before the tribunal that put his Savior to death. But how is it? How is it that he could proclaim such a gospel? How is it that we can proclaim such a gospel? How can we stand firm, clearly, and boldly, continuing to proclaim this gospel, this gospel even as opposition rises? 
Because the truth is, not, not all of you are called to be evangelists. Maybe you breathe a little sigh of relief when I say that. Not all of you are, are called to be evangelists. You're not. But, here's what I take away what I just gave. You are all called to confess Christ as the reason for your hope before men. You may not be comfortable making the full gospel presentation. Not everyone is gifted in that way. But you can confess Christ as the reason for your hope, and you can bring them to one who is an evangelist. To hear more. You can bring them to church. You can, you can schedule a lunch with your elder. You can schedule a lunch with a, a gifted friend. You have the opportunity to confess Christ as the reason for your hope and as the only reason for your hope. You have the opportunity to confess it before neighbors, before friends, before co-workers, and to invite them to come and, and learn more about this Jesus who God has made the cornerstone of his church. But if the gospel is offensive, and if the gospel is opposed, where can we find the boldness to continue to proclaim such a gospel in the face of opposition. That's what Peter, that's what Sam said to the children. Look again at verse 8. Look again at what Peter, what we're told about Peter as he stands before the council. We're told, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. How is it that Peter is able to confess Christ before the council? How is it that he is able to, to clearly and boldly and unambiguously proclaim this gospel before those who, who hold the power of life and death in their hands? It is because he is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in him. The Holy Spirit is, is, is working faith in him so that he believes, he, he knows these things are true. And so that he hopes, he, he knows that he has the same hope of resurrection that he saw in Jesus Christ through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He has been set free from the fear of death. And not just the fear of death, but even the fear of, of tribulation. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, he says, we do not lose hope even though our outer nature is wasting away. Even though we, we face opposition, even though we face tribulation, even though uh, we, we are perishing in this life, we do not lose hope because we know that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there is an eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. So we, the Spirit works faith in us so that we know these things are true. He works hope in us so that we are set free from the, the fear of death. And He works love in us, love both for Christ and for our neighbor. We confess Christ as the reason for our hope because Jesus' honor demands it. We want His fame to be known. We want His glory to fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. And we want our neighbors and our co-workers and our, and our loved ones to receive him as Lord that they might receive life in him. And the, the, the Spirit causes our love for God and for, for Christ and, and for our neighbors to abound more and more so that the gospel becomes a compulsion so that we cannot keep silence, so that we have to share this hope with those whom we love. You see, it's not only faith, hope, and love that the Spirit is working in us. That, that is the, the foundation. 
But there's an even further promise. And that promise is that the Spirit actually gives us words. Jesus says the Spirit will fill your mouth with words, with the, with the words of God, with, with effective words. And we actually see that in this passage. Look again at, at verse 4. We're told that many of those who had heard the word believed. Remember, as Peter and John are preaching, they are arrested. And after they are arrested, those who had heard believed. Even seeing Peter and John get arrested, arrested did not deter them. They still received the good news. They still believed and received salvation in Jesus' name. Because the words that they had heard were living words. They were the very words of God. Words that do not return void. You can't speak words like that on your own. I can't speak words like that on my own. My words cannot give life on their own. But through the power of the Spirit, we speak words that make the dead live. Think of Ezekiel standing before the valley of dry bones. The Lord asks him, Ezekiel, can these bones live? What is his wise answer? Oh, Lord, you know. I can't make them live. But I believe you can do it. And through the power of the Spirit, we can speak the very words of God that bring life to the dead. And so that one who you think will never believe, the Spirit can break through. That one who you think is beyond hope, the Spirit can reach. The Spirit can make alive those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so we proclaim this gospel in the power of the Spirit, knowing not only that it is our own hope, and so that what they do to us is insignificant compared to the weight of glory being prepared for us. But we proclaim this gospel knowing that through the power of the Spirit, it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And if we proclaim this gospel, God can work to bring us to Himself. And so how do we get this filling? If it's if what we need, if what we need to proclaim the gospel is, is the filling of the Spirit, how do we get it? And of course, you, you might think, well, we have the Spirit already. That's, that's true. That's actually the whole point of, of Acts chapter 2 and the, 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 the gift at Pentecost is that if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit. You have been sealed with the Spirit, Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 1. Sealed when you first believed the gospel. But Paul himself, in that same letter, goes on to command those same Ephesians who had received the Spirit and sealed the Spirit. He commands them to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is something other. And how do we get it? Well, he, he tells us. He tells us in that very passage. He says, how are you filled with the Spirit today for the works that God has given you to do to, today? You are filled with the Spirit as you endeavor to walk after your Savior, as you meditate upon His Word, as you, as you speak it into one another's lives and songs and hymns and, and spiritual songs, as you submit to one another in love. Basically, as you daily repent, Turning from your sins to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. He fills you to keep that resolve. 
He fills you to, to do that which you're committing yourself to do. In faith, you are committing yourself to follow Christ. In faith, you are committing yourself to, to bear witness to the hope that is yours in Him. And as you commit yourself to that, He fills you with the Spirit that you might actually do that which you have been called to do and that which you've committed to do. You see, we don't receive the Spirit when we are doing our own thing. We are filled with the Spirit as we endeavor to walk in humble obedience to our Lord and Savior. If we, in faith, seek to walk after Him, He will empower us to do all that He gives us to do. We will be able to live our lives to praise His glory. We will be able to speak the words of the Gospel in, in effective ways. We will be able to bring glory to our God, even as we bring good to our neighbors. That is what it is to be filled with the Spirit. As we submit to Him and submit to one another in love, He fills us that we might be faithful servants, faithful disciples of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because He fills us that we might do what He's called us to do, that's one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit as we endeavor to walk in humble obedience to your son, Jesus Christ. Father, give us boldness to confess Christ as the reason for our hope before God. And use our confession, Father, to draw many to your sons. May many hear the good news and believe and receive life in the name of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.